a message from one of our Sunday celebrations. And you can find out more about Jubilee by visiting our website at www.jubilee.org.uk. Privileged talk this morning. It's such a such a substantial morning. The last morning being here, Mel's last morning. This is the last the last one in our series on James as well. So I feel like a real privilege in in just bringing a few words this morning in the time we've got together. I think first of all, I'd just like to say how how flattered and how loved Julie and I have felt in the five months we've been here. I think we've just been here just over five months now, and it's been such a joy getting to know people. We felt so welcomed by Mel and the others around. So I just say you know really thank you for that. We've had a bit of a migrant, well I've certainly had a bit of a migrant past over the last couple of years, moving with my job from church to church and then we got married a year ago and again moved and have come here and it's so nice to be you know, part of the family of God and, and through that story of moving it's just so, we can see God's faithfulness to us and I can see God's faithfulness to me, putting this in families and families and in, and in some ways that's a little bit around kind of what I want to talk about this morning in James. So just, we'll read through James in a minute but I've really been thinking about um, about what we can get out of James for us this morning. It's our last morning here, and I think someone described a Sunday morning service as the shop window of a church. And it's where people come and have a look at what goes on. It's, where, it's a bit of a barometer of actually what church life is like. And actually, our shop window is moving. Our shop window is moving, moving from here, which has been such a blessing to us. And I, I believe we've been here for five years you know, and you know, what we said earlier about Carl and the others, a real blessing. But it's moving from what is a bit of a backwater right into the middle of town. So we're going to be so much more on display. You know, our shop window is going to be there and hopefully we'll have so many more people coming through to look at our shop window. Um, and I just want to look into James this morning at what things are going to distinguish us. What things are going to make us different when people come for a look to uh, just distinguish us from, from society and, and uh, everything else out there this morning. So just before I get started, I just want to, just want to pray. So, Father God, I just thank you for your words. Uh, I thank you for the truth that is contained within it. Lord Jesus, just I pray that you bless my words this morning, Lord. Um, what is not of you, would you just cast away? And what is of you, I pray, would just really sink to the hearts of the people here. Would you, by your Holy Spirit, just really develop the words I say and just give them truth and meaning. In your precious name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Okay, well, one of the comments I read about James described James as a bit of a sermon, really, rather than a kind of written book like many of Paul's. It's a sermon to the church, um, and it, it talks about um, it presenting a sermon to those who feel they can talk their way to God rather than walk their way to God. And so there's loads of instruction in there, and some of uh, James's main themes are around things like personal growth in spiritual life uh, and sensitivity in social relationships. Uh, and a fellowship that just can really change culture. We've already listened to kind of things in James 1 around patience in trials. James 2, learning to avoid partiality. James 3, taming the tongue. James 4, steps in developing humility. And James 5 kind of splits into three sections. It splits into warnings for the rich, patience in suffering, and then prayer of the faith. And a bit of conclusion to the whole book. There's absolutely loads in James, and, and I'm not even going to try and preach you the whole thing this morning, but I, I really want to try and hit three topics. I want to talk about money, I want to talk about grumbling, and I want to talk about prayer and watchfulness, are the three bits that I'm going to try and get. But just before I start on those, let's just read through James, uh, chapter 5. Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming upon you. Your wealth has rotted and the moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you 
and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workmen who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the days of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered innocent men who are not opposing you. Be patient then, brothers, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, and how patient he is for the autumn and spring rains. You too, be patient and stand firm, because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against each other, brothers, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you, as you know, we consider blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about, and the Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Above all, my brothers, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth, by anything else. Let your yes be yes and your no be no, or you will be condemned. Is any one of you in trouble? He should pray. Is anyone happy? Let him sing songs of praise. Is any one of you sick? He should call on the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up. If he has sinned, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Elijah was a man like us. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. My brother, if one of you should wander from the truth, and someone should bring him back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of his ways will save him from death and cover over a multitude of sin. So in the back end of chapter 4, James is talking about high risks um, and and things that actually um, can separate us separate us from a humble walk with God. So he talks about um, kind of judgment around others in 4 verse 11 and talks about presumptuousness in chapter 4 verse 13 to 17. And this theme kind of continues into the beginning of 5 and he talks about money as an area of high risk. And I want to split this into four areas. Um, It talks about hoarding, about fraudulence, about indulgence and then finally about betrayal. So if we look at verse 5, 2 and 3, your wealth has rotted and the moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you. Um, James is, is, um, is condemning the hoarding of wealth and, and just really trying to point out a, a point of senselessness in hoarding stuff purely for the purpose um, that moths are going to feed on it. Um, and again, this is just somewhere where your faith is going to move from actually in Christ into the stuff that you're gathering um, and the stuff that you're um, putting your trust in, which isn't actually him. Um, looking at Luke uh, 12, verse 32 to 34, um, Jesus says, Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will not be exhausted, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And I think that is so brilliant, thinking about actually this eternal perspective on what we spend, what we hoard, what we gather. And actually this ability almost to kind of post for ourselves treasure into eternity. Having this sense um, that actually there's just not, not now, but actually banking into eternity. Uh, and I think we need to have an eye on our heart. And, and, and so much of this money stuff is around heart attitude. 
uh, and, and how we feel. Um, and I think there's a real sense with this hoarding thing. There's a difference between hoarding uh, and, and reasonable saving and reasonable provision. Uh, and I think I've just been thinking around you know, how difficult it is kind of in our current climates. We've got the credit crisis. We've got it. It's really difficult to buy a house if you're younger. Slightly older people might feel they need to you know, aid their children with deposits for houses. There's so many things that take up such a large amount of money. You know, that, and we're so tempted to hoard and build up for ourselves these stocks of money. Um, and I think there's so much challenge in there uh, around actually where is our reliance and where is our faith. Uh, and, and to some extent there's no right answer, but it's just that heart attitude in ensuring that we're in the right place with God. I, think, I was talking to Graham beforehand, you know, and just been so blessed by the size of the offering that came. You know, and just real uh, you know, over the target that we had, which is such a great thing uh, and shows that we're in a good place as a church. Um, and I think... Also, we need to be aware of actually how wealthy we are. I did, there was this, there's a website called um, www.globalrichlist.com. And, and actually what it does is it, if you type into it, you, you put in a salary um, and it puts you in position of the whole world about where you actually come. So it's like kind of the Times Top 100, but for like 7 billion people. Uh, I just thought that was quite interesting, just to try and think about actually kind of how wealthy maybe we are. And if you plug in a salary of £20,000 a year, actually you're within the top 4% of global earners. Uh, I think I read on there somewhere as well that the average UK household income at the moment is, is around £26,000. If you plug that number into it, you actually just fall within the top 1% of global wealthy. I just think that's really interesting as to actually, as a society in England, where we fall in comparison to everyone else out there. I've had a real privilege at the moment of, of just coming back off holiday and spent a lot of time in the car and a lot of time kind of listening to some of the, um, the tapes from the, the Brighton Conference. There was one bit on there by John Peepy, who leads the churches out in Ghana and the other area and talks about um, this family who just wanted to give out of their poverty and he went and visited them because the church was going to take an offering and actually the kids had nothing. The kids didn't even have clothes. They had a bare house. They had no field. Uh, sorry, no food. They had nothing in their fields. Um, but they said, we still want to give. How can we, how can we give to the church? Uh, and he turned and said, well, you know, let's look in your garden. Let's look around. And was just saying to God, God, you've got to give. They've got to have something. They've got to be something that they can give because they want to. And they noticed that actually in the field there was water. Uh, and actually he said, well, there must be worms there. So actually he dug around and there were a load of worms in the back garden. He said, I'll buy those worms off you. I'll buy them. So they were in the church uh, that morning. And this little kid came up and had this little pot of worms and gave them to him at the front as part of their offering. So God actually doesn't call us to give what we don't have, you know, but calls us just to give and to offer. And I just think sometimes in our context here, we can so get ourselves away from a global context uh, that actually puts us in a very wealthy and a very fortunate position. So there's a lot around, around hoarding and, and how we don't want to put trust in, in wealth. We want to have faith in God. The next bit in, in 5 verse 4 looks at fraudulence. Um, and again, talks about how um, workmen who have mowed fields are crying, against, are crying out against you, and, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. Now, James is actually talking to the church here as well. So this book is aimed at, at, you know, at the brothers, at the brethren in the church, um, and it speaks of dishonest employers. And I think, I, I mean, I've, I've got a few people who work for me, and um, and I know how much financial matters great against people. I've got one guy who just, because of the way that he's come through the company, he sits next to a guy and does a very similar job, 
There's about a 10% wage gap, and for unfortunate reasons, he knows it as well. And actually, it so grates against people when they do the same thing but don't earn the same stuff. Um, and I think if we're employers or people who actually seem to be doing that kind of thing, um, we just need to be really honest uh, in our transactions. Uh, I think that's something else. You know, final dealings should be abs- financial dealings should be absolutely above reproach. Um, you know, we'd never go and steal from a shop or steal from a bank, but you know, would we copy a CD to onto our iPod or would we copy a bit of computer software or stuff like that? It's it's taking it to the nth degree and, and saying actually, God, you know, we want to be absolutely above reproach um, when when we stand before you. Um, there's, there's an interesting management book called the, the Seven Habits of Highly Effective People by a guy called Stephen Covey. And he goes through seven things, and it's not a Christian guy. He goes through seven things that he thinks are really great if you want to be effective in what you do. Um, and habit number four is negotiate for win-win. He says, if you're, if you're in a dealing, negotiate so that you win and the other side wins. Or, perhaps you don't want to do the deal. Because he says, actually, that's the best place to be. Um, and actually, we can't be fraudulent if both sides goes in there and wins. So maybe that's the best way of doing things. And that comes from someone who's not even a Christian. And then I think there's another point around, should we be supporting things that absolutely rely on fraudulence? So things like sweatshops, you know, child labour. I know a lot of people feel very strongly about that. And I was interested in there's 84 million children employed in child labour. You know, for companies like Gap and Nike, you know, kind of subcontractors, these kids who just don't see the outside and, and more than anything have their childhood stolen away from them. Is that something that we should be supporting? So I think it goes everything from the corporate down to the personal. But James speaks quite a lot there around fraudulence. And then as we move on into, into verse 5, it says, You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the days of slaughter. Now, when, when James... Yeah, sorry, when... Um, Graham gave me James, and I opened it up and read the passage. I thought, oh, man, sometimes that, that's not speaking to the congregation. That's just speaking to me. You know? And I think sometimes you, I can do this study, and it's, it's so much more for the person doing the study than maybe the congregation. But, but it talks about indulgence. Um, and James you know, keep her, take, talks about keeping a hold on luxury spending. Um, in the phrase he uses, you've lived in luxury, which is... Um, using a Greek word, um, trifio, which is not found anywhere else in the New Testament and, point, and points to extravagant comfort, kind of a softness of luxury, which is quite different to some of the other words used elsewhere. So, for example, in 1 Timothy 5, verse 6, uh, the phrase is, you have lived in pleasure, which actually uses a Greek word that, that talks about you know, um, immoral living. Um, so, actually, it's, it's not suggesting that. It's just talking about really soft comfort. And although this is not corrupt, this, this luxury offers no resistance to sin when there is promise, a promise of comfort or enjoyment. And there's just a real danger of not living on earth um, with an eternal perspective. There are so many, so many stories that Jesus used. And you think of Lazarus uh, and, and the rich man. And the rich man doesn't even get a name. And Lazarus was there at the gate, you know, just eating with the dogs. And the rich man was feasting every day. And yet when it came to the rich man... Um, to pass away, he, he was in hell, and, and Lazarus was up in, in heaven, and he said, you know, could you not even dip your, toe in, uh, dip your finger in the water just to soothe my lips? And actually, that was the gulf between the two places that they were, and he absolutely lost eternity um, because of the way that he lived in, in luxury. And, and then the other, the other story that suggests is the rich young ruler, you know, he says, what must I do to inherit the kingdom? And Jesus says, you know, sell your possessions uh, and come and follow me. He didn't tell everyone to sell his possessions, but for that person, 
It was his possessions that were standing in the way of his relationship. It was his possessions that had his heart and had his heart attitude. And actually Jesus knew it was that that he really needed to work on. I think the other story that that Paul talks around is is Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5. And he talks about them selling a field. And actually because they lied to God and they lied about um, not giving everything over, they both died. And actually that was the consequence of lying. Um, and they actually had a load of other options. They could have turned around and said, actually, we're, you know, we have sold the field, we've taken the money, and you know, we're not giving anything. Or we've, we've sold the field, we've taken the money, and we're going to give a percentage. You know, they, they could have done a load of other stuff, but actually it's the fact that they lied, and just that, that heart attitude inside, um, you know, greed and wealth. Um, and I think there are loads of other things that affect us as well. I know for me there's a bit of, I work hard, therefore I deserve and I just think that's not right. You, know, you work hard. You know, work actually came before the fall. You know, Adam was told to tend the garden in Eden actually before the fall came about. Work is of God. Work is good. Um, but actually it doesn't give us an automatic therefore you deserve. Because still it's you know, God's grace that gives to us. Um, and I know that's something that I work on uh, and really try to put in the right place. And what really helps me think about that as well is that actually what I have isn't mine. Actually this, this sense of stewardship you know, what God gives you, we are here to steward, here to look after. Uh, I think about you know, Lord of the Rings and the, and the steward um, there. He wasn't a king, he was only a steward. He was only in charge. And actually, when the true king returned, it was his rightful place you know, to rule the kingdom. Um, it wasn't the steward's place or the sons of the stewards. And, that, and the same with us, you know, we are the stewards um, of what we have. And those who are faithful in stewarding what we have will be given more. And will be given more that is important to God. So again, you know, Jesus talks about the parable of the ten miners in Luke 19 and talks about you know, that each of these servants was given a miner and, and one came back and said, you gave me one and now I've got ten. You gave me one and now I've given you five. One and three. And he came back and said, you know, actually to his master, you gave me one and, and I just hid it because I, I know that you were a hard man um, and I just wanted to give it you back. And he said, you know, you wicked servant. You didn't go and invest what I gave you. You didn't go and use it for good. Um, and, and it's really harsh towards the person who didn't use the gifts that he was given. But yet the people who actually multiplied what they were given, they were given ten cities for those who brought back the ten miners, and five cities. And you know, I think God just shows the fact that money is pretty low down in his priority list, and actually people and culture and lives are really high up. You know, the world is all about money gain, actually, you know, these times... Rich lists and actually look how good they are, how much money they have. But that's just foolishness to God. Um, and he, just, he talks about you know, people and that's where his heart is. So gathering financial wealth is, is really not godly wisdom. And I think there's a real challenge just in indulgence. There's a difference between what we need and what we want. And I, and I think that's just a massive challenge for me. But when does need turn into want? Um, and you know, back to that. Um, verse in Acts when it describes the, the New Testament church that no one had any needs, that no one in that body of believers had any needs. What, what a testament to the church. Can you imagine if people come in, look through our shop window and go, do you know what, there's a whole group of people there and not one of them have got a need because they support and they love each other and they give as it's given. I, I had a story in one church where, where it was a, there was a single family, single parent family and they didn't actually have a washing machine and, and this was found out um, and uh, uh, the story basically was is that some, some guy just turned up from the church, just turned up with a washing machine, had bought it brand new, great washing machine, 
sent it in, plumbed it in, turned around and just walked straight back out again. You know, there was no comment, there was no, there was nothing else. There was just provision, something they needed, and it was provided for. Um, and I, I mean, maybe I should have asked him, would you like this model or that colour to go with the kitchen? But, but, uh, <laughs> but actually there is that sense of just, let's actually, can we provide for one another? Do we know each other well enough to think, actually, there's something they really need? And you know what, I've got it and I don't need it. Is there someone else in here we can absolutely bless? And there's a challenge in there. Do we know one another? Are we honest? You know, Englishman's castle, you know, there's, there's no way into our home and maybe into our hearts. You know, and there, that sense of opening up and actually saying, no, I trust you guys. You're my family. We're a family of believers together. So do you know what? I don't want there to be a needy one amongst us. Let's support each other. And that's financially as well as spiritually. And then the final one of the four for money is, is betrayal. And I think this is, this is, again, really interesting. I'm just going to read from a different Bible here. And the bit I just want to read is just about when um, Jesus is reclining at the table and when Mary pours out that vessel of nard, that, that offering, um, and, and the reaction um, of Judas. So while Jesus, this is uh, Matthew 26, verse 6. While Jesus was in Bethany in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. When the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste, they asked. This perfume could have been sold at high price and the money given to the poor. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing for me. The poor you will always have, but you will not always have me. And actually, if you go and look at John's, uh, in John 12, verse 2, which is his uh, recording of the time, uh, again, it says, But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say that because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief as a keeper of the money bag. He used to keep himself um, to what was put into it. Uh, and then it goes back on to say, uh, and basically says that that was the point at which Judas turned round and went to the Jews and, and plotted Jesus' death uh, you know, and sold him for 30 pieces of silver. Absolutely, at the core of Jesus being crucified, and the thing that led to money, that, just that reaction for Judas, it was the last straw. You know, he said give, he said give, and then he's not condemning this massive... It doesn't make sense to him, but you can see where his heart attitude is at. And that heart attitude is so strong that it causes him just to go out, and it's the thing that breaks it for him. Um, and I think that's such a warning sign to us. Where is our heart attitude with money? Where is our heart attitude um, when, when something beautiful like that is done? And actually also understanding that, that Jesus loves that offering. Jesus loves that extravagant offering um, and that is so special. So, again, this, the sense of betrayal and money being wound up into it, and it's all about heart attitude. I think the more I look at the subject, it's more all about heart attitude. Money of itself, I don't think, is not an inherently bad thing. So although it's sounding quite negative so far, money is not, neg- uh, not a bad thing. But I think it has a magnifying effect. So whatever your heart attitude is, money will magnify it either way. Um, and also, I think it does put you in this position of high risk as a Christian. So if you look at, you know, what is one of the main things of an elder? An elder is to be... Um, someone who is not a lover of money. It's, again, you know, take out that risk from people who are actually in charge of leading the church. Um, and again, the other bit is, you know, poverty is not a sign of godliness either, and neither is prosperity. Because it's, it's all about what God has given and what God does. And again, just, again, comes back to heart attitude. 
Um, and again, I was listening to these talks from, from New Frontiers. It talks about a guy called Scott Marks, who runs um, a number of churches in Zimbabwe, and then has now moved to Mozambique. And he's a businessman that is using businesses as a church planting vehicle, um, and has got all sorts of businesses, and he's currently using a chicken farm to plant into Mozambique, and absolutely using an amount of wealth and, a, and an understanding of money and an ability to just push God's kingdom forward, uh, which I think is just really exciting. Uh, and something that you know, I'd love to get involved with. So I think that's really exciting. So when people come to our shop window, what do they see with money? What heart attitude do they see amongst us? Um, and there's, there's loads of talk about, we want to change our culture, and we want to make our culture different. And, and we have a bit of this at work at the moment. We want to change the culture of work. And we talk about this culture cycle, the fact that culture drives attitudes, and attitudes are quite long-standing. Um, but attitudes drives feelings which are personal, and feelings drive behaviours. And behaviours drive culture, and culture drives attitude, and attitude drives feelings, and feeling drives behaviours. And it's the behaviours where you can change it. It's the behaviours where you can, you can cause people to change behaviours and change what they do, and that again will change culture, which will change attitudes, which will change feelings. And actually, we've got such an opportunity to change our behaviour and to demonstrate something different. Um, David Stroud was talking a little while ago, again. What, what is better? Is it to challenge culture currently or just show a better way? And he used an example of the Da Vinci Code. So when the Da Vinci Code came out in America, it grossed about $220 million. And it lost about a million dollars because there was a Christian organisation who stood against it and said, actually, we don't want people to go. We challenge you not to go to see the Da Vinci Code. Um, and he said, actually, okay, that served a purpose and that did something. But actually, if you think about the Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe and you think about the Passion of the Christ, two things based on you know, Christian tradition and Christian stories, they massively outgrossed the Da Vinci Code, massively outgrossed it. And it just showed a better way. So actually, are we better off by challenging culture or just showing what is better? Now, when people come in and saying, rather than saying, oh, you shouldn't spend on that, you should give this, just showing a group of people with no need amongst us. You know, showing a group of people who give to the poor, who serve people in foreign communities, who've got an eternal perspective and yet are all contented. You know, I think to demonstrate a better culture is more powerful, probably, than to challenge what is here. So... I'm going to move on relatively quickly. That's, that's a bit on money, um, which is only the first chunk, so we will move at, at a little bit of a pace. The next bit is, is verses 7 to 12. And um, if you look at 7 and 8, it reflects back to earlier on in, in James. So verses 7 and 8 talk about patience. Verse 9 talks about the tongue. And verses 10 and 11 talk about patience and steadfastness. And verse 12 talks about the tongue. So this kind of reflection in there. And, and the bit that I wanted to pick up again is just verse 9. Um, and verse 9 reads, Don't grumble against each other, brothers, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. I think the world absolutely loves grumbling. I think it's like, it's like when you get bitten by a fly, and like the itch, and, and the itch just makes it feel better for a little while. But you need to keep itching, and you need to keep itching. And I think that's what grumbling's like. And I think the ultimate display of the fact that the world loves grumbling is Big Brother. And I think that's, it's, it's amazing. If you find, I can't remember how many people go in there, was it 12 or something? You find 12 really strange, dysfunctional people that are blatantly not going to get on, and you put them in a goldfish bowl. And then you just watch as they grumble at each other. And people love it. They love it so much that they'll watch it 24-7. That people just, you know, grumbling and complaining against each other. Um, 
And I just think that's really interesting. And I know from my workplace, people love having a conversation and then turning their back and saying something else to someone else. And do you know what? As a group of people, we so shouldn't be doing that. We should so be breaking the back of not grumbling. It's so easy to get drawn in. And do you know what? I feel myself getting drawn into it. And I can feel that little itch. I'm thinking, oh, that's nice. But actually, we want to stand aside from grumbling and be people of absolute truth. When I, when I took over my team at work, um, I gave them six meeting rules. Uh, and there was all sorts of stuff like, we're not going to jump up and down and get to the toilet and we're going to turn mobile phones off and all the rest of it. And there was one that I had to go into. And one of my meeting rules when I run meetings at work um, is if you don't have the guts to say it in this forum with all of us here, you don't have the right to that opinion elsewhere. And I say to people, look, actually, if there's something that you believe and something you want to challenge our team on, say it. And everyone has a right to say it, and, and everyone has a right to be heard. That's another kind of meeting rule. But actually, if you don't have the guts to say it in that meeting forum, you do not have the right to that opinion. And I've come down pretty hard on people who have been doing it. And I put that in place purely to stop grumbling, because it divides people, and you get factions, and you get people divided against others, and you end up getting this massive mess that is very painful. Let's be honest with each other. Let's really stand up. And, and actually, again, I don't, I don't want to go too worky, but... It's quite interesting, again, talking about um, seven habits and talking about uh, management. At work, we, we have to do this thing called leadership mindsets. And um, habit number five of Mr. Covey is seek first to understand and then be understood. And at work, we do this kind of feedback method, which says, I see you, you make sense. I make sense too. Let's work together to do new possibilities. I think it's quite good. So actually, if we have got something that we want to grumble about, or actually we don't agree, rather than just grumbling away, actually let's go forward and say, actually, let me understand where you are, and oh, you make sense. I didn't understand that you were coming from that perspective, or I didn't understand that piece of history that actually affects your opinion. But you know, this is my opinion, and this is where I come from, so I make sense too. Right, we now understand where we both are, and where the basis of our opinions are. Let's do something different uh, to go forward. And I think, crumbs, if we can do that... Or if, if, a, if a business can do that, how much better at that should we be as a church? Are we open? Are we absolutely honest? Um, and is our heart attitude in the right place? Um, not being interested in being quarrelsome uh, or things that result in envy and strife that's talked about in 1 Tim 6. But actually displaying, you think of the, you know, the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. Those are things that are just so going to display um, God in our community. So again, when people come and look in our shop window, they don't see a group of malicious people backbiting. They see a group of people who actually don't necessarily agree on everything. But you know what? We actually got the maturity to resolve those opinions and find a way where as a corporate body we can go forward um, and move into the promises that God has for us. That's... Again, it's a very, very fast skip through, and there's loads of other stuff in there around patience uh, and around tongue, and, that, and that's been done, I think, in previous weeks. So I'll just finally skip on to the last chunk. Uh, and the last chunk is, is 13 to 20, and, and there are just two bits in here I think I wanted to pick up on. The first was around prayer. So again, in, in verse 13, it talks about um, is any one of you in trouble? He should pray. Is anyone happy? Let him sing songs of praise. So encouraging, prayer and praise. Let's be those that pray and then rejoice um, at the good things that God has given. Verse 16, it talks about praying for one another. 
Uh, and then in verses 14 and 15, it talks about the elders praying. And, you know, in certain circumstances, serious sickness, mental, physical, or spiritual issues, it's time to call in the elders um, and lay on. And I, I don't want to go into those, and there's, there's a load of stuff in there, but I think there's a bit around, as a group of people, do we have openness and accountability? And I think that's such a challenge. I know to me, and certainly from someone who's moved around quite a lot, I, I so often try and come into church and think, who can I be? Who can, who, I want someone to know me. I want someone to know where I struggle and the things that I struggle with. Um, and discipleship opens up that sense of accountability um, that stops the devil from isolating us. And I don't know how many of you have felt there's that thing that you really struggle with, that temptation that you slip into. And you can hear the devil's little voice saying, that's only you. It's only you that struggles with that. No one else struggles with that. Don't you realise it's only you doing it? You can't possibly tell anyone else. Can't else about it because they'll think you know, not, you're not going to be accepted into the church if people know that you struggle with that you know you've got to keep that to yourself that's that's what you've got to do and that you can hear the lies of the enemy yet if you break that because you've got openness and because you've got accountability actually you find out that half the room struggles with it and half the room's got some better ways of dealing with it than you have and actually you can work on it together and I can remember at uni I can remember we had a really good sense of um, discipleship and we had really good kind of one-to-one pairs within my CU and I can remember struggling with stuff and actually having the guts down and saying I'm really struggling with this guys and you know you go around that yeah I am as well yeah I am as well yeah I am as well and you think right okay we can tackle this as a team and have accountability for one another rather than the enemy just getting in there and he loves to isolate it's so scary putting yourself in that place where you know maybe I am the only one I think statistics probably say that you're not you know, even in a church of our size, you ain't going to be the only one who suffers with that issue. Uh, I just don't think we're complicated enough as humans to have that many different issues. Um, yeah, actually, we can really share and be challenged um, to live our lives in the open and live our lives in accountability. I think the, the final bit that I just want to talk to, I appreciate time is pushing on, is, um, is verse 19. My brothers, if one of you should wander from the truth... And someone should bring him back. Remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from his error of his ways will save him from death and cover over a multitude of sins. Uh, I think there was, a, there was a quote I read that said, you know, society today wants Christian standards without Christian convictions. I think, Crumb, that's true. Oh, that is true. And, um, and actually, as Jesus was a shepherd who left the many and went to, you know, went to find the lost... Uh, sometimes there's people amongst us, actually, do we keep in touch with those who are on the fringe, those who are just outside? Actually, there might be people also amongst us, do you know, who have become part of us and who have become part of their community, but actually have never actually accepted Jesus. And if you are here this morning and you think, actually, do you know what, I love being part of this group of people, I do feel accepted. I mean, you know, Julia and I are a testimony to that you guys are such a welcoming group of people because we feel so welcomed here in our short time here. And others will feel welcomed, but they might not be saved. Actually, are we still a community who know each other well enough to say, do you know what, you need to take you know, responsibility, you need to have a salvational faith, you know, believe in Jesus, you know, repent of your sins. Actually, do we know each other well enough to put that challenge? Um, and at the end of 1 Peter 4 verse 8 says, you know, above, all love, above all, love each other because love covers over a multitude of sins. And that's that sense of love, that heart attitude that is really going to kind of combine us together. So, just a bit in summary, because again, I know time's pressing on. So, when people come to our new shop windows, we've got a great place. You know, I went around the quad for the first time yesterday. It's so light, it's so airy, it's so modern, it's so in the centre of town. 
We've got a fantastic shop window that people are going to want to come and look in. So when they come and look at us as a shop, um, you know, are we a community without need, sharing together and working together? Are we unified, you know, a community of one mind, one purpose? Are we a prayerful community of openness, trust and accountability? And are we a loving community who cares for each other and seeks the lost? You know, and actually, if we are those things, are we not demonstrating a better way? Are we not demonstrating something which of culture that will absolutely challenge you know, what is actually out in the world at the moment? And people can come in and say, do you know what? That is a better way. Not a church that has got rules and difficult to follow, but crumbs, a community that works, loves each other. Such diversity. God loves diversity. God loves community. Um, and yet, in that culture, we can be representing him um, and really what the, the early church did. So, that's pretty rapid walk through five. Um, I think I'd just like to just finish really just by praying. So can we all stand up together? <coughs> uh, just when I was preparing for this, uh, God just did me a, give me a couple of senses. And, and one was a sense of anxiety about this move to a new shop. Um, that actually, you know, some, where we are at the moment, God has so blessed us in this place, um, but it's not perfect, and that's why we're moving on to somewhere different. But I'm sure all of you have moved homes, and there's been a time before uh, where you know the home isn't quite right, but you know what? It's still home, and it still has that sense of familiarity, and the move to somewhere different is difficult, and there's anxiety and tension. It might not work. It might not do this. And I think God just wants to give us as a community a real sense of peace this morning um, and a real sense of favour. I got so excited listening this morning to that move. And actually we're moving and we're moving on in God's purposes. And I think God wants to come this morning and give us a real excitement about this move and take away any anxiety that we have. Um, and I also just think, again, just that one other thing is I feel a sense of people who feel trapped by finance you know, trapped by the pressures of the world and trapped not being able to give. Um, trapped because they know they're, you know, whatever there is, there's something big out there, but absolutely trapped by it. And God just wants to give you favour. He wants to give you heart attitude and he wants to give you confidence this morning. So I just want to pray over those two things um, this morning. Father God, I just thank you for your word. I thank you, Lord, that, that you have a passion for community, Lord. You have a passion for your people, Lord Jesus, I thank you for such instruction so many years ago, which is still so relevant to us today, Lord Jesus. I thank you for those truths, Father. And right now, Lord Jesus, I just pray for uh, for us here this morning. Would you put on us a sense of excitement about our move, Lord Jesus? Uh, A sense of our future, a sense of purpose, Father. Uh, Any anxiety, any difficulties, Lord Jesus, I pray that you would give us the ability just to overcome those, Father. And have confidence that this is your move. This is your next step for your people here, Lord Jesus. And I pray that you would just give that to us now. And and Father, I also just pray for anyone with these concerns about money. Father, you know our heart. You know where we are, Lord Jesus. And I just really pray, would you release that, Father? Would you release those chains and that bondage? And would you just pour your blessing out upon them? Just pray for that in your precious name. Amen.
listening to this Jubilee Church podcast. Feel free to check out our website at www.jubilee.org.uk.